0: Welcome to Weekdays with Jesus. Today's message and song are both about God's grace. Jesus radiates grace not only in his teachings, but in his life. Today, Pastor Ben Johnson focuses on the love of Jesus that was graceful. A few stories encapsulate the graceful nature of Jesus and his love he gave to the sinful woman who had been caught in adultery. As Christians, we have been called to live a life of love that is full of grace for others just as Jesus is full of grace for us. As I mentioned earlier, we're continuing the series as we follow along on these principles that come to us from a book written by Dr. Les Parrott called Love Like That. And um, and we're looking in on not just the way that Jesus embodied love, but then asking ourselves that hard question of how, how have I been called to love like that in my own life? So for a moment, let's just talk about what it means to be a disciple. A key discipleship principle that we've been really highlighting through this is what I call the two sides of the coin of following Jesus. On one side of the coin is the aspect of learning. The word disciple in Greek means, methe- it's methetes, and it means a lifelong learner. The reality is we're all disciples of probably different things. You could be a disciple of football. You could be a disciple of brewing your own beer, a disciple of some hobby or craft, some DIY, of of woodworking, of refinishing old cars, a disciple of the latest fashion, the disciple of the, of, uh, the Republican Party, a disciple of the Democratic Party, a disciple of name it. Okay? What it means is a lifelong learner of, okay? So what does it mean? To be a Christian is that we are lifelong learners of Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, that in all ways, if you claim yourself as a disciple, what you're saying is, I want to be just like him. How did he talk? How did he walk? Who did he talk to? How did he treat them? In all ways, I want to be like him. He is my rabbi, my teacher, my leader. I am a student. I am a follower of him. So on one side of the coin is learning. It's studying. It's enriching ourselves. It's getting into it. I mean, we live in a culture right now where it's a 50-50 coin toss if you ask someone, do you like to read? And they're going to answer with yes. People don't read. We don't read. It's so disheartening. I'm not a great reader. My wife is phenomenal. I am not as good. I still read, but I'm not as good. Right? My problem is I don't pick many fun books. Mine are all like Christian books, and it's just like, oh, Tim Keller. Oh, Tim Keller. Right, but to not read, it's like you can't YouTube your video your way through following Jesus. There's no way, because all you're doing is regurgitating from what other people say, or you're watching Christians and you're saying, and then you're being encouraged by someone else's passionate following of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't call pastors to be professional Christians. He called them to be shepherds and teachers of the flock. It's not my role to do Christian for you. It's to do this together as we follow Jesus together. Part of that is we have to be studied. What are we studying right now? Do you know I read a study that said the average college student won't read another book cover to cover until 10 years after they graduate? Some of you are are blown away that people don't read. It'd be like if I said to some of you, you know there's people that don't like football. What? Not in Iowa. Yeah. Right? Right? you have to study you got to read you got to enrich you got to get into it it's imperative we're lifelong learners okay that's one side of the coin then you flip the coin over the other half of following Jesus is then as you learn him and study him we then approach it in a sense of radical obedience that if Jesus did it if he taught it if he modeled it that's what that we need to do that in our life I heard one scholar say that Christians of the West are, are how do he put it? He said, "We are over-intellectualized beyond our obedience." Meaning we have so much information. we know so much, and we've equated knowing with discipleship. Yeah, I know that. I read that. I read a good book. Oh yeah, I know that. And it's like, that's cool. That's only one side of the coin, though. Because the other side of the coin is, then what are you doing about it? Like, I could say Jesus said, love your enemy. And you're like, oh, yeah, I read that. and would be like, cool. But that'd be like me claiming I know how to build tables by watching YouTube videos. Like, oh, yeah, I know that. Like, I saw someone build a table. I know how to do it. I mean I haven't built a table but I know how to do it. Like people, you know, or we watch like one documentary and now we're an expert. No, how do you learn how to build a table? What do you got to do? Build a table. How do you learn how to love your enemy? What do you got to do? Bam! We know this. We know this. All right? We but but it's been lost. The art of discipleship. So we got to reclaim that as Christians. Where we study the word. We enrich ourselves. We follow Jesus. We study him. Even some of you right now are like, why didn't you order the book? Why? Are you too busy? Is it because we told you to? It can't be because it's too expensive. It's like the same cost as a Starbucks drink. You see what I'm saying? We are disciples of something. The question is of what? To be a disciple, there's never a moment where, as a disciple, you can turn back to your rabbi, biblically speaking, and say, I don't want to do that. Or that's too hard. I don't have enough time. I'm too busy. Biblically speaking, if a disciple ever turned to the rabbi and said, I'm not going to do that, they would literally forfeit the right to be a disciple anymore, severing the tie. Like when Jesus talked to the young man and said, go sell all your possessions, give it to the boar, come and follow me. And he walked away sorrowful because he owned much. He chose, I'm not following you, Jesus. Jesus didn't run after him. He told him what he wanted him to do. The guy didn't want to do it. That was his choice. Now, thanks be to God that our relationship to Christ is based on his grace and his mercy and not all the times that I respond faithfully in obedience to what he's taught me to do. Because if we're all honest, we would have severed the ties of discipleship years ago and in lots of different ways. True? Oh, easily. Do you know how many times Jesus told me to do stuff, and I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know." Like, love your neighbor. Uh, I don't. Jesus, you haven't met my neighbor. Like, <laughs> forgive. Remember that one? And you harboring? You know, be generous. Can't serve two masters. I. I think we get it right. So as we come into these teachings, we're asking those questions. Now today, what we're doing is we're looking at the reality that the God we love and the God we follow is a God who is graceful. And so to get at this conversation, we're first actually going to start in John 1. So if you have your Bible or device, we're going to be in John 1, and I'm just going to read some verses here, all right? Now if you want to just listen to that's fine. Just kind of let it soak over you as we talk about this. John 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 13. John says this In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. By the way, the Word is Jesus. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In Jesus is life. And his life is the light of humanity. Light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not even know him. He came to his own people, meaning to his own domain, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus is the word of God, the the logos of God, And, and the most miraculous miracle ever is when the power of God became flesh. It says in there that everything that has been made was made through the power of God. You know, they have these new telescopes that are looking even deeper into the universe than ever imagined. Those pictures are phenomenal. Phenomenal. And it always hits me right between the eyes where you look at that and you're like, Jesus breathed that. Stars that are like a thousand times our star. And Jesus into being, knitting people together, crafting them in the womb, all creation fabricate, all things that have been created were created by the power of Jesus Christ and that word, that power became flesh dwelling amongst us and the character of God is that he is full of grace and truth. He is grace and truth. Scripture says God is love. Scripture says that God is wisdom. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Here it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. These are characters of God. It's not like Jesus has access to a truth beyond him. So when he speaks, it's truthful. He is the truth. So let's talk about grace and truth here for a moment. Truth is not just having the right answer. It's not just knowing how to look it up. And Siri definitely doesn't know it. Truth is a person, the person of Jesus. So to know the truth is to know the person of Jesus. When Jesus came it no longer became just about rules or the right answer, but truth became a person and was embodied and was with us. And then grace, charis, likens to the word chesed, which is the key character word of God in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And you've heard this word all the time. It's it's really untranslatable, but it's the steadfast love of God, or the patient love of God, or the unmerited favor of God, or the loving kindness of God. Michael Card uh, defines it this way. He said, when, when the one from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. Jesus is the embodiment of the chesed of God this unmerited favor, this boundless mercy, this this unfailing grace that Jesus is full. Full. I mean, every decision God has ever made was righteously good, loving, full of wisdom, full of truth, leading to life. Every one of them. Like, you will never read something in scripture that God does something and then it's followed by, oops. Like, there'll never be a time in your life that God will look on your life and, and, and throw up the emoji and go, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm as confused as you are. Your relationship's a wreck. Yeah, the country's a wreck. The world's a wreck. I don't know. I don't know. No. Our God's never out of control. He's never confused. Perfectly balanced and true within himself. At all times. And he is the embodiment of truth and grace. Full of grace. Knowing truth doesn't just mean we know it. It means it's embodied. Knowing truth is knowing Jesus. Let me give you uh, our our key discipleship principle to really drive this home. So I'm going to bring up a a real hot topic right now. Real hot topic. You ready? Are we as Christians pro-life? Come on. It's not a trick. Yes! Yes! Of course it is. Now, if I was to ask you, what does that mean? Right? Lutherans love that question. What does this mean? What does it mean to be pro-life? It means to be pro-Jesus. Jesus Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To claim that you are pro-life is a way of saying, I am pro Jesus, we're about life, not death. We're about light, not darkness. If it has to do with killing, we don't like that. Because that's what Jesus had to do in order to conquer death. So to be pro-life is to be pro-Jesus. Now, if I was to come around and ask some of you, what does that mean for you? You probably could give me what you would consider the right answer. And I would probably say that's a good answer. Yes. Okay? Now, That is one side of the coin. Now we need to flip the coin over. And I'm going to ask you the same question, but in a different way. What does it mean to be pro-life in your faithfulness? What does it mean that you show the world you're pro-life with the way you love? And how you advocate with your homes, with your time, with your money, with your energy, with the children you've adopted, the children you brought in from foster care, how you care for widows and orphans, how you care for the poor. Being pro-life is not a vote. It's a person. Being pro-life is greater than just abortion. That is the starting point. But if every single one of those children is born, what now? Are we are we done? We done? Woohoo! They got life. My job's done. Picketed worked. Who cares for them? Whose children are they? James says the only righteous thing that Christians do care for widow and or- aren't they our orphans? Foster care is the orphanage system of the United States, and according to the Word of God, those are our kids. You know, if one tenth of Christians in the United States all took in one foster care child, we would lick the foster care system in the United States. Now, obviously, I'm passionate about this. My wife and I are foster parents. I get it. I'm not saying that's the only way, but what I am saying is this being pro life is greater than a political party, being pro life is greater than a vote. And if we boil it down to just that, man, we're missing out. Being pro life is being pro Jesus. And that's just one topic of a host of things that are written about in the word that we as Christians submit to. Right? As I mentioned, what does it mean to love our neighbor? Cool, you gave me the right answer. Now, how does your life reflect it? Cool, what does it mean to love your enemy? You gave the right answer. You can even look it up. That's awesome. I mean it. That's great. Now, what does that mean in your life? What does it mean to be generous? What does it mean to be sacrificial? What does it mean that the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus by the way we love each other? That's cool that we know that, but how does it reflect that if someone came in our church, this service right now, would they know that we are passionate about Jesus Christ by the way we love them? How does it show up? Do you know the names of the people you're sitting by? Do you know what's going on in their life? Have you talked? Have you introduced? See, we got to go deeper, deeper into this to be led by our graceful God. So the first thing is let's stare at his chesed. John 8, 1 to 11 is just an incredible story of the chesed of God. When Jesus got up early in the morning, he came and he was teaching. And the Pharisees and the scribes are wanting to trap him by bringing a woman that they caught in adultery. Fascinating. I thought it took two to tango, but whatever. Where's the dude? That's all I'm saying. Where's the guy? (laughs) But they got the girl drag her out, throw her down in front of everybody and say, hey, the, in the law it says we need to stone her. What do you say? And they think it's a trap because if Jesus says, yes, kill her, they're breaking the Roman law. And if Jesus lets her go, they break the Mosaic law. They think they got him. Jesus instead starts scribbling in the dirt, probably likening itself. If you want to look up the scribbling in the dirt, if you've been confused, look up Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. Make Kind of makes sense. Jeremiah 17, 13. I don't know for certain if that's it, but it's kind of on the nose. And then Jesus looks out at the the Pharisees and he says, which one of you who is without sin, you get to throw the first stone, starting with the older ones, which I think is cool, drop their stones, and they walk away, and Jesus pardons her, says, I do not condemn you. Dr. Les Parrott said on page 63, Jesus acknowledges the ugliness of sin, but he chooses to see beyond it. I'm, I'm going to use an analogy for you. All right? And he uses it in the book, and I've seen it used before, and I've seen it all around, but it's worth repeating. All right? I got 100 bucks, and it's crisp. It's crisp. Pretty. Okay? Free of charge, who wants it? For real. You want it? That's cool, man. You want it? Man, that'd be a crazy Sunday, wouldn't it? All of a sudden it'd be like, today an offering as it comes by, take some, right? Of course we want it. You take it. 100 bucks, cool. All right, I'm looking at you now. Do you want it? Would you still take it? Okay, hang on. Why? It's still a hundred dollars. Did my crumpling and my stomping take away its worth? no matter how crumpled the world makes someone, no matter how stomped out they get, their worth has not changed. Jesus sees beyond it to the worth of the human being. Worth his life. You think $100 is cool? How about a God that says, I'm going to lay down my own life for you so that when you die, you're going to be with me. See, many of us are walking around life with a lot of rocks in our hands. Being graceful means we need to drop our stones of condemnation and judgmentalism fueled by our self-righteousness and our pride. we got to stop walking around like the world needs us to be right. It doesn't need you to be right. It needs you to be faithful. The world needs to know who lives inside of you. People need to know their worth. And the only way they know their worth is by meeting life, the one who made them. And he lives in your body. See, we live in such a graceless culture where people got really loud mouths and really thin skin. We want the right to be able to say whatever we want about whoever we want and throw stones at anybody we want. And we like to see people crash. We like to see them burn. We like to see people get what they deserve. Yeah, but I don't want to get what I deserve. I mean, yeah, yeah, I want you, but not me. See, the Pharisees wanted that woman to get what she deserves. And then Jesus says, cool, how many of you are without sin? You want to get what you deserve? I'm good. Exactly. Jesus is the only one who can throw stones. And he turns to the woman he says, I don't condemn you. He could have thrown stones. He had every right to throw stones and he chose not to because he is chesed full of grace. Living a graceful life is going to show up in three primary ways in our life. First, it's going to be towards others. There's never an excuse to throw stones. Some of you need to to listen up right now. Some of you aren't You're not gonna wanna hear this, but you need to knock it off. You are a follower of Jesus Christ, a bearer of the cross. You don't belong to a political party. This nationalism and using it against other people, it is bogus and it's not of us. We have been given the right to be called children of God, not born of anything worldly, but born to the kingdom of God and we worship a leader who sacrificed his life for us. And he calls us to give his grace away to other people. And we're so busy trying to make marginal lines on others that we're missing it. You've you got to rise above this stuff, you guys. You have to. It's not who you are in Christ. It's got to end, man. We're not. We are not going to make a dent on this culture if we don't fall on our knees before Jesus. The other person, though, is is ourselves. You know, some of you are hearing me right now, and it's going to fuel this narrative of, "I'm a no good, poor, miserable sinner." Bah, bah, bah. And man, some of you, the hardest person in your life is you. You know, I call it the pimple effect, right? You get one pimple on your forehead, the rest of your whole face, 99.9% of your face, clean and clear, but you can't stop staring at the pimple. Man, some of us walk through life that way. One mistake. One thing we've done wrong. One thing that goes in error and we just crush ourselves. Man. Stop making it about you. Have some grace for yourself. Who said you're perfect? (laughs) It's still not I who live but Christ who lives in me. And Paul said in my weakness I get to boast his strength. So I'll what do you want to know? Yeah, I mess up every day. It's not about me. It's about my Christ. It's about my Jesus. What You want to see my perfection? Well, I'll tell you what. Peer into me, and I'm going to point to him. Because it's not about me. So hold, hold yourself loosely. You're going to mess up. Take sin seriously. Don't let that be in your life. It's gross. Get rid of it. The spirit that lives in you is greater than the spirit of the world, so you get rid of it. And the other part is just the understanding of grace towards God, meaning that God at all times in all ways is graceful towards us. Now, I'm, I'm going to leave you with, with, a, with a, just a final example, and this really changed the way, for me, that I think about the heart of God. In John 1, it says that we've been given the right to be called children of God. True? All right, so I'm going to, I need you to think through your parent heart, okay? And if you're a kid, you just look at someone who loves you, all right? But think through your parent heart. I had a moment. My daughter's almost seven. She'll be seven in January. This happened about a year ago. You know that age when the kids really want to do everything for themselves, but they're just not quite coordinated enough to get it all done? That was my daughter, and, and she really wanted to pour her own glass of milk. Cool. So she went over to the fridge. She got the carton. She said, Daddy, I got this. She put the cup down. I said, you want me to help? I got this. All right. She took the milk. She started pouring. You know what happens, right? Milk came out quick, hit her little plastic cup, sent it over the side, milk, right? But the thing that broke my heart is when my daughter looked at me with these eyes that were like, like, what are you going to do? What's the consequence? Don't be mad. Parents, that break your heart? When they look at you, I'm not an I'm, I'm overbearing dad. I, like, I give way too many treats. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a treat dad. Don't tell mom. That broke my heart. Her instinct was, my dad's going to be mad. Man, you know, in that moment, all I wanted to do as her dad was this. Just wrap her up and be like, yo, my love is so much bigger than some spilled milk. Man, my love is so much deeper than your mistakes. You're going to make all kinds of spilled milk mistakes in life, hon. And guess what? I'm going to hug you right through all of them. We're going to learn from them. Maybe next time I can help. I'm with you. I'm not against you, though. I love you with a steadfast love, a patient love, an unmerited favor. And if my wicked, sinful heart can feel this way towards my daughter, then what's the heart of God feel like towards you? That is graceful. And he wraps us up and he holds us tight. And he says, now, I love you. Go love others. Go give that away. I love you. Go. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to live a graceful life. That's what it means to be worthy may you go live it and give it amen amen today's song is also about grace i asked songwriter laura marriott from california to say a few words laura can you tell us about your song sure kevin
1: so i co-wrote this song with john green in 2009 I was a baby worship songwriter and learned a lot from co-writing with him, but we wanted to write this song, Giver of Grace, to remind us that uh, through Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins, we are covered by God's unmeasurable, uh, undeserved favor, and uh, we can come to the throne freely, uh, without shame, without guilt, and and just receive God's grace receive that forgiveness for our sin and feel like we can start again and we can continually walk with him and grow with him even if we even if we mess up even if we fail we can still receive that grace it never ends and so i hope this song will really encourage those that listen to it oh.
2: Sal